Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And before we start, I'll get you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. So my name is Mary Nichols. I am retired from city government and I have a mother in a long-term care facility. She is in a nursing facility. In Texas, we have various kinds like most states. We have nursing facilities, assisted living, we have home health care um, facilities, we have intermediate care facilities. There are lots of different types of group homes. So, uh, but my mother is in a nursing home. Um, she is wholly and completely incapacitated. She cannot speak, she cannot swallow, she cannot make eye contact. She cannot move her own arms and legs. She can't even turn her own head. Uh, My mother is fully and completely dependent on those people who care for her in her facility. Um, When the facilities were closed March 13th of 2020, I was no longer able to go in there and look after her day after day, do her laundry, uh, make sure she has um, moisturizer on her mouth, um, moisturize her face, check for pressure sores, um, clean underneath her constricted fingers, um, you know, do her laundry and all those things that I, I did before. So I was kind of panicked. Um, but like everyone else, I thought it would just take a couple of weeks for them to figure it out. And then we would get some sort of direction about how we would be entering facilities. Um, two weeks passed, three weeks passed, four weeks passed, and then I, I really started panicking. Um, I started calling my representatives and I called the facility and I started looking for people who could give me answers and you know, nobody had any. So um, it, it was June when I finally started a, a petition online and then started looking on social media for other people who felt like I did. Um, and that's kind of how we got together I found some people like me who thought like me and we got together and then um, I found Mary Daniel on Facebook who had started Caregivers for Compromise on July the 9th. She encouraged individual states to start state groups. Um, Another lady had actually started a Texas page and I joined the page and we talked and I said, this is not working. People couldn't interact. We couldn't post resources. So I suggested starting a group and she really did not have the time or you know, the ability to commit to something that big. So I started the group on July the 12th. The page eventually went away because it just really was not something that provided resources. It was just more of a um, pages on Facebook really don't allow for a lot of interaction. Um, so Mary started Caregivers for Compromise on the 12th. I started our group, or she started on the 9th. I started our group on the 12th. And then when other states were slow to start their groups, she went ahead and started a state for all of the, a, a group for all the remaining states. Wow. So Mary, Mary Daniel actually started the Caregivers for Compromise groups for most of the states. Um, she didn't start Texas. I, I, I did start Texas and I do, I do run Texas, but um, that girl built, she built an empire. She built an advocacy empire. Um, and um, I followed in her tailwinds. And um, that's kind of how Texas Caregivers for Compromise got started. It did not take long. 
we started the group on July the, the 12th. By August the 7th, we were having a rally on the steps of the Capitol. Well, at the gate, on the steps at the gate of the Capitol, because the Capitol <laughs> was shut down. But it did not take long for people to rally to our cause and agree that we needed safe and reasonable visitation in long-term care facilities. We never asked for them to throw the doors wide open, but we did ask for safe and reasonable visitation. Wow, I know that's, that's just amazing because I, I take it, um, you know, the main purpose of your group is primarily just for advocating and to be able to find a, a safe way to come back into the facilities for your loved ones. And I know that Mary, um, Mary Daniel was on the Long-Term Care Chronicles as well, uh, detailing her, her story and what she has done. And she's just an amazing, amazing advocate, uh, extremely so. But I'll let you just go through in terms of the advocacy for your group. So last year, we, uh, we did four major projects and each one kind of had a different purpose. The first thing we did was our petition. And our petition was, was huge. It started out small, but we started the petition, or I started it June the 9th, yeah. no, June the 12th, and then started the group July the 12th. So we already had some names on the petition by the time Texas Caregivers for Compromise was formed, but I think there was only like 800 of them by the time the group actually okay. came together. By the time we actually had essential caregivers, which is what we asked for in the petition. By the time Texas actually put essential caregivers in place on September the 24th, we had over 25,000 signatures. So um, that petition grew very quickly and it didn't take us very long to realize that we were not alone. Now, for a while, we all thought maybe we were in the wrong. Um, we talked to uh, our legislators who would say, you know, hang in there, we'll pray for a vaccine. There's really not anything we can do right now because the legislature is not in session. So we initially did not get a lot of encouragement from our elected officials. Same thing from our nursing facilities. So what we then began doing was approaching the governor directly, sending him our petitions, and then also our health authority, which is Texas Health and Human Services. So we sent the governor a petition every single week. We printed a copy of the petition and every single week we sent the, the petition to Texas Health and Human Services. So we mailed it out every single week to each of those people, progressively larger each week, printed it, sent it to them, printed off um, a cross section of the comments that people had left. Like, you know, I haven't seen my mother in 90 days and now she's gone and I'll never see her again those kinds of comments that we wanted them to see the human side of this because all we had heard up until then was a very scientific and clinical approach to um, containing the disease in long-term care facilities. And we really felt like our loved ones were being looked at as statistics and numbers and rolling averages. And it was offensive because so many people in our group had already lost their loved ones after not having seen them at all. People in our group have loved ones that were in absolute total and complete isolation when they died. They died never understanding where their family went, why they were alone. They were isolated in a room all by themselves. Um, 
either because their roommate was taken away or because they had the disease and were being contained and their loved ones were not able to talk to them at all. And one of the hardest things about this was how readily accepted um, people thought um, electronic communication would be in long-term care facilities. When in fact, so many of our residents are incapable of understanding, even if someone else operates the, the tablet or the phone for them, they are not cognitively able to understand what they're looking at. I know before my mom became totally incapacitated, um, the tablet was just white noise to her. I used to use the tablet to play videos and show her photos of family, but before she became incapacitated, there was a period where it was just nothing but white noise. Um, photographs on the wall just became trash. They were just pieces of paper. They didn't matter. Um, she could hear voices. You could talk on the phone. But in these facilities where there are no phones in the bedrooms and the residents were limited to using the staff phones and because of COVID-19, they were not allowed to use the staff phones, their only options were window visits. Well, this caused extreme agitation with those residents who had cognitive disabilities, cognitive injuries, dementia, Alzheimer's. They would go to a window and cry and scream and bang on that window, not understanding why they couldn't go out or their mom or relative could not come in. And we're talking about a lot of young adults with cognitive injuries and, and cognitive diseases in state-supported living centers and intermediate care facilities. These are not all senior adults. We have 13 state-supported living centers in, in Texas and our largest one in Denton, there's over 400 residents in that facility and these are young adults. Um, one of my group members, her young son was only 29 and he self-harmed when he heard his mother on the other side of a tablet. Wow. And the facility was too big to allow window visits. So she was locked out of a gate on this multi-acre campus. She had to stand at the gate and hand off uh, whatever she needed to deliver to her son, most of which she wasn't even allowed to deliver because at that point they were sanitizing yes. everything. So this was a very, very isolated situation. Um, and it was, it was very difficult to make the general public understand how cruel this was because the answer was usually we'll just take them home yes yeah uh, you know if we could take them home we already had at that point um it's not easy to take someone home to an environment that is not as safe or as healthy as the facility where you have them you can't move them to another facility because facilities are not accepting transfers in the middle of a pandemic or they're full and you've got to wait on a waiting list. But the most poignant thing that people are missing here is that the reason they are in that facility is because that is the safest and healthiest environment for both them and their loved ones. My mother was hiding knives in the couch cushion. She was walking butterball naked down the middle of the street in the middle of the night, in the freezing cold, and then defecating on the neighbor's front porch. It was impossible to contain her. She set the kitchen on fire. 
her her dementia was so extreme she had no idea what she was doing and we did the best we could to make sure that she was medicated I took her to three different doctor appointments every single week. She saw her general physician. She saw her eye doctor. She saw her neurologist. She even saw a psychologist and a psychiatrist. She, uh, she had so many doctor appointments that, I mean, I actually bought a different car because I tore the labrum in my right arm lifting her into our pickup truck. So I bought a small little Chevy Spark that I could get her in and out of to take to her doctor appointment. But it just wasn't enough. Um, she needs 24-7 skilled nursing, and I can't yeah. give that to her in my home. Even if she wasn't wholly capacitated, my home is not a safe place for her or for us. Yeah. Um, if she gets up in the middle of the night and sets the house on fire or um, does something else that, that harms the family, how do I live with that? So it's, it's not that easy particularly with those um, young adults that have yeah. the cognitive disorders and cognitive diseases, the ones that self-harm need 24-7 supervision. They might not need the 24-7 skilled nursing, but they do need the 24-7 skilled, uh, the 24-7 supervision. Uh, they need to have people around all the time that can prevent them from harming themselves. A lot of these residents are one headbang away from death. They, they get angry and agitated. All they got to do is bang their head on the floor one time and, and it could kill them. So it's very serious. But what will often happen is after an interview with a news station, um, they will put that on their Facebook page or link it to their Twitter. Never read the comments. Just don't read those comments because people are cruel. And a lot of people will say, well, if she really loved her mother, she would take her mother home. Or if she really loved that 29-year-old son, she would take him home and take care of him herself. Where there's a will, there's a way. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Bottom line here is, if there was a safer option, a healthier option for our families, those families that had those options, they've already done it. They have already taken their loved ones home. And I can also tell you that a lot of people took their loved ones home to environments that were not safe. I know of several um, yeah. If this was another time and another date, I probably would have called Adult Protective Services. Uh, there was one lady with extreme Alzheimer's and her daughter took her home and left her home alone because the daughter had to go to work during the day. But she did not want her in that facility, screaming at the window, enduring the kind of emotional distress that she was enduring, not understanding why the daughter could not go inside thinking that the daughter was punishing her or being cruel to her. She could not bear the emotional torture her mother was going through. And so she just had to roll the dice. Do I leave her there and let her live in isolation and feel tortured and um, in this emotional state all the time? Or do I take her home yeah. and run the risk of her harming herself while I'm at work? And then that poor lady, she had to sleep at some point, um, you know, people with Alzheimer's tend to sleep more during the day and they're awake wandering and, you know, opening cabinets and opening drawers and digging through things. And they make terrible messes in the middle of the night because they're, they're sorting through things and they think things are hidden from them. So, um, so it's just a very difficult situation all around. And it's, yes. 
it's the reason we keep going. It's the reason we are not going away until every one of these people has access to their loved ones. Absolutely, because uh, that's, I think, you know, I'm pretty sure that's what's driving a lot of you in your, in your group to, to make these changes be a reality. And I know that uh, back in March, uh, Governor Abbott, um, you know, he updated the, uh, the executive order back on March 3rd and provided the guidelines with PPE. Why has this still been an issue in terms of being a little bit misleading to family members? Well, the reason it was really confusing was because he announced that Texas was 100% open. Texas was not 100% open. So what consequently happened was you had all of these families who were rejoicing. Yay, we're 100% open. And that was really difficult for them. It was really, really difficult for those facilities because these family members showed up at facilities thinking the facilities were open yeah. and the facilities had to say, no, we're not. And they're arguing with them saying, yes, they are. The governor said you are. Um, so we tried very hard in our group that day. I actually posted the actual executive order and said, this does not apply to long-term care facilities, but we're only 3,100 family members and yeah. there are 1,222 nursing homes and there are over 2,000 assisted living centers. So we have well over 120,000 people living in long-term care facilities in Texas. I think it's actually 130,000, but I'm not sure. So I always say 120, but um, I don't have access to 120,000 people to tell them. I only have access to 3,100. So imagine all those other people who thought they now had access to their loved ones in long-term care facilities. So it was very confusing and it caused a lot of grief for our long-term care facilities and for our health authority here in Texas. We had to clear up that, um, that, that miscommunication. If you go to his website right now, the governor's mm -hmm. website, um, the headline that is pinned to the top is his executive order. And it does say Texas is now open 100%. So even today, that March 3rd executive order is his leading story. Um, and, and it is 100% if long-term care residents don't count. Yeah. And that's how we have felt since March 13th of 2020, like they don't count. Um, like the solution to keeping them safe is just locking everyone out um, except the staff and putting them over in a little bubble off to one side and we'll get to them later. Um, they, they just weren't a high priority. We will get to them later. Where in my opinion, that should have been a first priority. We know this is where the disease is coming in. Let's address this right now. Um, but nobody actually understood that isolation kills too. And that's the, the main point of our group we are not at all saying that COVID-19 is, is not the crisis that it is. I wish I could count on both hands how many people I know personally who have died from COVID-19. I am sick of it. And it is not just senior adults. Um, the senior adults I know of who died of COVID-19 was because staff members brought that disease in. We were locked out. Long-term care facilities locked families out. We could not have possibly brought that in. But we were really anticipating in that first two, three weeks, 
that there would be some kind of a plan um, at that point. One family member per resident could come in if they're wearing a hazmat suit or if we spray them down with Lysol. I don't know, something. It was a new disease. Who knew? Shave me bald headed. I don't know, something. But we got nothing. It was radio silence. And there was no communication to families from most of those facilities. They didn't communicate with us at all. Um, we just left voicemail after voicemail after voicemail. Um, I actually don't know any family members who have said they got any communication from their facilities because facilities didn't know what to say. So it was just this perfect storm of isolation. And meanwhile, these loved ones just gave up. My sister-in-law's mother totally and completely died of isolation. She, um, she was 95, totally had her wits about her. Uh, she walked with a walker, but she got up every morning, um, washed her face, put her earrings on, combed her hair, went down to the dining room and lived to socialize. Her life revolved around socializing with her friends, visiting with her daughter who came every other, not every single day, but every other day. So she saw her at least three or four times a week and writing letters. If you knew Miss Edith at all, you got a card from her and you didn't get just one. You got frequent cards from Miss Edith and they weren't just little how you doing thinking of you wish you were here cards. These were long cards talking about you know, your, your daughter, your sister, your dog, how's your mother? I remember when you were little and I used to teach you this and I remember seeing you ride your bike and I, she wrote long letters. That's what she lived for. Mother's Day, my sister-in-law went to see her. It had been three weeks since, well, no, it was Easter actually. It had been three weeks since the lockdown. She went and saw her Easter from a distance. She was able to see her through a window. Um, Miss Edith had her wits enough about her, but it only took two weeks for her to go from walker to wheelchair because she was totally and completely isolated in her room, had to eat in her room, couldn't talk to anybody, um, couldn't, couldn't even go you know, use the phone without permission. She, she was still able to talk to my sister-in-law on the phone. Um, but Easter Sunday, she told her, I'm not gonna live like this anymore. And she didn't, three weeks later, she was dead. She was perfectly healthy on Easter Sunday. There was nothing wrong with her. She just didn't want to live like that. She said she, she was living in a prison. They brought her food in on a tray. They took her food out on a tray. She never left her room. She had no reason to live. There was nothing in her life to look forward to. Um, most senior adults don't watch TV, don't read books. Um, their vision has gone. Their attention span is too short. If you have dementia, that noise from the TV can be very um, upsetting. I know it was for my mother. The noise was um, was a source of agitation. She lost she lost the ability to differentiate fiction from reality. So when her roommate had the TV on and was watching Law and Order, my mother thought that crime next door was taking place right now this minute, and she would get hysterical and panic. So. A lot of these um, senior adults have nothing else. That's all they have is looking forward to a family visit. Um, you take that away, 
you take their social socialization away. They didn't have um, their activities either, their exercise classes, their um, physical therapy. They had nothing. They didn't have a reason to live anymore. And a lot of them didn't. But we had a very hard time um, making people understand that isolation was killing people. But that's the whole point, point of our group. Yes. COVID-19 is killing thousands, but isolation is killing them too. And we had a hard time making people understand the reality of that. Unfortunately, months into the pandemic, um, it became obvious and our legislators were getting calls. Um, the staff at our facilities were telling our, our health authority, this is, this is killing our residents. And Wendy, we are, we are facing a mental health crisis like I've never seen before. Yeah. I think it's helped that visitation has been expanded some, but the emotional toll, not just on those residents, that's a given. Everybody accepts that now, that the isolation was killing residents. I don't think anybody will argue that with you. No, but the emotional toll on those staff members who who were working ridiculously long hours, who were constantly worrying about taking that disease home to their own families, who were watching people suffer and die on a regular basis. The 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 toll on the staff members is unimaginable. Yeah, the toll on the family members. People don't talk about that. We live with the anxiety, the grief, the guilt, the guilt of putting them in the facility and not being able to take them somewhere else, um, the separation. Mostly we live with that anticipation of receiving the phone call that our loved one is now deceased and our loved one died alone without us. Family members are enduring an excruciating amount of mental distress. So it's not just the residents, and I don't want to say any one group is enduring more distress than another, no. but it has been, it has been unimaginable. The, the, the torment that, that this has put people through has just been unimaginable. And, um, there are still some people who say, but you know what? We kept them safe. Did you? Did you really? Yeah. I don't think so. Mm, that's quite a cost. It's quite a cost in terms of the human toll for everybody involved. And I know what you're saying. I've heard that from a number of individuals here as well. As to that phone call, I mean, I can't even begin to start to imagine what that is to know that if you get a call at a certain time of the day, you're thinking the worst and it happens not to be. So to live in that type of um, fight or flight type of state is, is extremely hard. And Going to, um, you know, for the one year of the, the lockout, you were in Austin, Texas, and um, you had a um, protest happening. Can you just uh, let us know what you, you did uh, for that to, again, further call to make the changes that should be happening? Our national advocacy, like I said, we have, we have a caregivers for compromise group in every state um, in, in this country. 
Some are more active than others, some are bigger than others. We're Texas, we're one of the biggest. Um, we might be the biggest. It's either us or Florida. One of, our, one of us is the biggest. Florida and Texas are the most active caregivers for compromised states. Um, but the coalition of states got together and we're doing some anniversary pushes to remind our legislators statewide that facilities were still closed, that it had been a year, uh, the suffering was ongoing, please don't forget them. Um, and so there was a lot of that going on nationwide. Here in Texas, there was no need for us to um, petition because we did that back in August. There was no need for us to protest. We did that back in August, but mostly because we have our legislators' attention. Um, last fall, we got our legislators' attention. We sent out um, books with our essential caregiver proposal and they did listen to us. They called me, they spoke to me, they walked through it with me. Texas Health and Human Services, when they adopted our essential caregiver uh, program, used a lot of what was in our own proposal. So our group has been effective in communicating with um, our governor's office called me, so we've communicated with them, we've communicated with our legislators, we've communicated with Health and Human Services. So there's really no need for us to protest and say, listen to us, because they were listening to us. At the same time, it had been a year, and we did need to make sure people realized we were not going away, that the, the guidelines in place um, worked when they worked, but those facilities who did not understand the guidelines, misunderstood the guidelines, or simply chose not to follow them, we're still preventing residents from having access to their loved ones, and those people were still alone. And we needed to make sure that our legislature knew that we were not going away. Um, so we had already done our traveling signs, the sign behind me. Um, so states across the country started um, doing traveling signs. Last fall, one of the projects we did in here in Texas was we got 300 of these signs behind me. Um, they, I have a small version right here. They're kind of like this. And we wrote a name. Let me see if I can get this on here. We wrote a name down here on the bottom. Yes. Um, of loved ones who were either living in isolation or who had died in isolation. And what we did was we traveled those around the state. We would leave them in one location for a few days and then we would meet up with another group member and we put them in another location for a few days and we actually traveled those around Texas. Texas is a big state, that was a big ordeal. Um, when I first threw that idea out, had no idea if it was gonna work or not. I just like threw it out and said, hey guys, I got a crazy idea, what do you think? Well, we did it last fall and it was very successful. So in March or early this year, when they wanted a March project, the coalition decided let's do the traveling signs Texas did. So we had states all over the country using this exact same sign. And um, some of them traveled them, some of them just left them in one location. Some of them used them as petition signs when they held their protest at their capitals or wherever. But some of them, their actual state capitals gave them permission to put them on the lawns. Governor DeSantis gave Mary Daniel permission to put her 300 signs on the Capitol lawn. Mm -hmm. So it was really remarkable 
that these things that Texas has done over the last nine months, some of the other states were beginning to do. So we, we didn't do any of those things that they were doing. So we were kind of the cheese standing alone since we had already done the traveling signs, we'd already done a petition, we'd already done a protest on the steps, we didn't need a protest, our legislators were listening to us. What could we do to remind our, our, our legislators that we're still here and that residents still need their guidelines expanded because they're still being isolated. Essential yes. caregivers are still kept out. Visitors are still not being allowed in. So I threw out another crazy idea. And this time I asked the group, so one more traveling sign, but this one will be a great, great big one. And we will fly it around the state capitol from a helicopter. Well, I couldn't get the helicopter. I got an airplane. Um, I couldn't believe it. They jumped on board. I am so sorry. That dog is barking. That's okay. We raised $7,000 to hire an airplane to fly our logo around the state capitol for four hours. And March 12th, was the last day, March 12th was the last day that we had free and open access to our loved ones in long-term care in 2020. March 12th was also the last day that our legislators here in Texas were able to file bills. Um, most of our national groups did anniversary events on March the 12th and March the 13th. We chose the 12th because we knew the Capitol would be full. And so we flew our plane around the Capitol for four hours on March the 12th with a um, 25 by 50 foot banner, I think, okay. uh, that said isolation kills too. So uh, we were noticed. <laughs> uh, you wanna share some of those pictures? Sure. Uh, it was really fun because we actually, uh, I and some of my group members had some meetings with legislators that morning mm -hmm. and and passed some in the hallway that we were familiar with. So all of those legislators we met with or saw, we were like, hey, by the way, you want to go outside and look at our plane? <laughs> so, um, I did get a lot of emails from some of those offices that said we did. We went out and looked at your plane. Wow. Well done, y'all. So, um, so yeah, let me share some of those pictures with you. Um, uh, let me move forward here. This is actually our plane. Um, this is our banner. And we did have trailing letters here uh, that said open long-term care facilities. Um, we just kind of felt like, and after a year, it was time for those emergency rules to go away. Yes. And um, it, it really was time. We, our loved ones are vaccinated. We have in, in our facilities anywhere between 85 and 100% vaccinated residents in most of our long-term care facilities. Now, I do know in Central Texas, that number is a little bit smaller. Um, I, think, I think in the middle of our state, some of them are still waiting on their second vaccine, but we have an extremely high number of vaccinated residents. I do believe most facilities are almost 100%. Um, we really felt like with our loved ones being almost 100% vaccinated. We as family members were committed to also getting vaccinated. 
I actually don't know of anyone in our group who has objected to the vaccine. I know there are plenty in the national group, but uh, in our 3,100 family group here in Texas, I, I don't know of any who have said that they have not gotten the vaccine or are not going to get the vaccine. So we've made a commitment to infection control and um, the vaccine is part of that. So we really felt like it was time to end those emergency rules. And, and this is one of the one of the ways we told them that. Um, it was kind of a cloudy day, but you can see that's the, the plane flying over our, our yeah. capital right there. So um, it was really neat. We, uh, we made a big splash. <laughs> Texas does things in a big way. <laughs> Um, and what's really neat about it is because we bought the banner, we own it, uh, we can actually fly that or ship that to another state and they can fly that in some of our other states um, and just fly that isolation kills two banner if they want to do that. So uh, we may actually do that in, um, in the national capital at some point, if we okay. can get the flyover approval, Yes, yes. I'm looking into it. Um, <laughs> there is a federal essential caregiver bill that uh, Congresswoman Claudia Tenney has filed. And uh, it would be really neat if it were possible to get the plane to fly that uh, yeah. somewhere over DC around the time uh, that maybe there are, I don't know, press conferences or mm -hmm. hearings or something going on that have to do with that bill. But that's in the future and that's just one of those big ideas floating around my head that I haven't yes. gotten anybody to sign off on yet, but you know what? You never sign know. off on the other big ideas, so. Exactly. I'm not exactly. too worried about it. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. And I know you mentioned about the, um, about Texas being 100% open and back on March the 3rd of 2021, uh, Representative James Frank, who is the chairman of the House Human Services Committee, he sent out a tweet saying that uh, Texas will not be 100% opened until residents and nursing homes are able to visit their loved ones. How important was it to have him acknowledge this from the chairman and your group working with the committee to affect the change on visitation? Representatives, Representative Frank's support um, has been enormous and it has, it has meant so much to us. He, like you said, is the chair of the House Human Services Committee he filed House Bill 892, which makes essential caregivers a statutory right here in Texas. The same day he filled that, filed that, Senator Lois Kolkhorst filed Senate Bill 25. Um, at the time it was Senate Bill 297, but because the Lieutenant Governor made that a priority bill, it is now Senate Bill 25 and it was identical language to um, Representative Franks. Senator Colcourse and Representative Frank have been two fierce advocates for loved ones in long-term care. Um, both of their committees got copies of books that we put together. Uh, we put booklets together in August with our essential caregiver proposal and sent that to those committees and both of those chairs. Um, and then in the fall, we created a publication, it was actually a book, a hardback book called um, Saving Them to Death. 
And in that book, we had some specific requests of our legislators. We also included in those books who we are, um, Texas Carriers Compromise. We wanted them to know we're not, we're not lobbyists. Uh, we're not attorneys. We are just families who came together because we were dealing with this unimaginable burden. And we're, we're, we're not paying anybody anything. We, we're, we're doing all this on our own. We, don't, we haven't hired any lobbyists. We are just families. And we wanted to make sure that they understood who we were uh, and that we're, we're just constituents. We, we're, just, we're just residents here in Texas. So we put those books together to explain who we are because since we have a name and since that name is nationwide caregivers for compromise, we didn't want there to be any misunderstanding that we were any big corporation and we needed them to understand that we're just, we're just people. Um, so we sent those to the house human services committee, the Senate committee on health and human services, which um, Senator Colcourse chairs. And we sent them to every single Senator we have 31 of those in the state of Texas. We were actually only able to send those to half of our 150 house <laughs> representatives because we're a big state and that's a lot yeah. of people. So um, we assigned representatives, we assigned representatives to group members who bought a book, had it shipped to their house and then their job was to mail that to a legislator. Uh, they didn't necessarily get to mail it to their own because their yeah. own may have been taken. But I think I think we were able to mail it to 90 of our 150 House representatives, 31, all 31 senators, which, you know, included that, that whole um, Senate Committee on Health and Human Services. And of course, we made sure that whole House um, yes. Human Services Committee got the books. So when Senator Colcourse presented Senate Bill 25 to the full Senate, she actually held up a copy of that book and she actually read excerpts from that book. And she even quoted some of my testimony when um, the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services held public hearings on Senate Bill 25. That's how invested yes. those two legislators are in long-term care residents. Um, it has meant everything to us to have legislators that invested in our cause. On top of that, each of them also filed a joint resolution. There is a House joint resolution and a Senate joint resolution. Uh, the Senate joint resolution um, actually has already made it through the Senate and is uh, on its way to the House, calling for a constitutional amendment in the state of Texas. It will put this in front of the voters so the voters can decide if essential caregivers should be a constitutional right for residents in long-term care facilities. And the reason this is so critical is because then it can't be paused. All those rights that are in state law were paused. All those rights that were in federal law were paused. They just put them on hold, like they didn't exist. We're just gonna push the pause button like it's a video game and we'll come back to that later. And then they never came back to it later until people like us started kicking and screaming at the Capitol door. Um, but the thing that is just so incredibly poignant to us is that June 12th, when I started this petition 
nobody had heard of essential caregivers or cared about essential caregivers. Um, our legislators weren't talking to us. Our, our nursing facilities and assisted living and state support living centers weren't talking to us. Essential caregivers weren't even a word. And so we started advocating and writing letters and mailing petitions and it was just nonstop, absolutely nonstop. Um, our projects, the petition, the booklets we mailed, the letters to the committees, the letters to the governor, the letters to Health and Human Services, the copies of the petition week after week after week, um, the, the rally at the Capitol, uh, the traveling signs, those traveled for 13 weeks and we got incredible media coverage over those. Just nonstop work from July 12th when the group started until September 20, well, September 17th, when we heard the governor say on television, next week, essential caregivers will be allowed in facilities. And he actually said, each resident will be allowed two essential caregivers. And that was kind of crazy because we only asked for one. So yeah. we, were, we were like, wow, that's great. Um, and so from July 12th, when we started to September 30th, or September 24th was when Health and Human Services actually put emergency guidelines in place that allowed essential caregivers. So we went from nobody having heard of it, being made fun of, being told we're just trying to kill granny, um, being told we're wasting our time. There's no legislature in session. Why are you doing this? Um, you know, we're trying to keep your loved ones safe. How dare you? All these things we heard and endured to the governor saying on September 17th, next week to essential caregivers. And then on September 24th, Texas Health and Human Services actually issuing those guidelines. The last day I saw my mother, my brother and I went March 12th and saw my mother. See if I can say this. Yeah. We picked up her laundry and said, we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow didn't come for 202 days. I saw her again on September 30th. By September 30th, she could no longer make eye contact. She never looked around and she heard my voice. She couldn't turn her head when she heard my voice. You didn't even see any acknowledgement on her face that I was in the room or that I had made a sound. So um, whatever cognition she had left on March 12th was stolen from me. Yeah. There's nothing the legislature can do for me personally right now that will help my mother. But I can sure keep working for all those others to make sure that they don't lose what I lost so that I can try to make sure that they don't die alone in their rooms, that facilities are not denying those end of life visits, that facilities are not keeping essential caregivers out. Uh, we do have some general visitation allowed now that facilities are still saying, nope, we're not gonna do it. Yeah, I'm gonna keep working and make sure you know you have to do that. That's what I spend my whole day doing is helping families know that they can advocate to do that, telling them how to contact their long-term care ombudsman. Um, that's, that's what I do. 
that's what I've dedicated my every waking moment to since March 13th. Um, well, actually two weeks or so after March 13th when I re realized that nobody had a plan. So it was really a couple weeks after that, but um, so many people also lost loved ones to COVID um, and they were not allowed to go in and say goodbye to them. Um, there's a lady who grew up in this town, my hometown. Mm -hmm. um, her husband had a um, cognitive injury. He had a head injury and he was in a long-term care facility. And she was never allowed to go back in and see him. Um, he, he did actually get COVID and yes. she had to say goodbye to him over FaceTime and he died by himself absolutely 100% by himself in a room four walls everything was everything was moved out it was just a sanitary room with nothing but a bed and him and whatever equipment you know the nurse needed to take care of him no belongings uh, residents have been denied their belongings they've been denied mail um family members we have been denied the right to um, care plan meetings um, we've been the, denied the right to make decisions about whether or not they should have x-rays. Uh, we have been denied notification of when they go to the emergency room. Um, residents have been denied the right to practice their religion uh, because their clergy or their, um, their priest or uh, whether they were you know, Jewish or Buddhist or whatever they were, all of that was taken away from them because the access to those people who helped either provide their last rites or <clears throat> provide those special um, religious um, services that they were so dependent on and which were such a core part of their life and their belief system, those were taken away from them. Um, we had um, some devout Muslim residents who, um, were not allowed to get on the floor and do their prayers. Um, I can't imagine a world where that's okay, but that's the way, that's the world we've lived in since, since March 13th, where it's okay to deny people their basic liberties in, in the name of safety. I'm not, I'm not okay with that. And I think, I think this is such an extremely dangerous precedent. Can you imagine? And next week, you'll listen to part two of the continuation of this conversation. So please join us next week in listening to Mary Nichols. Thank you.